Hi. Welcome back to Imaginary Advice. My name is Ross Sutherland. I, uh, I hope you're doing okay. <laughs> Coming up on today's episode, I am thrilled to say we have a special collaboration between myself and musician Emma Lee Moss, a.k.a. Emmy the Great. We've been working on this collaboration throughout October, and um, yeah, I'm really excited to share it with you guys. Before we get to that, though, let me uh, quickly cap off some previous business on the podcast. So the last six entries on this podcast feed have been dedicated to my puzzle fiction miniseries, The Golden House. That miniseries is now complete. Um, If you listened, I hope you liked it. It's definitely the most ambitious thing I've ever tried on this show. If you haven't listened to The Golden House yet, then um, let me really quickly tell you about it. This was basically my attempt to make an ARG Uh, an alternate reality game using the podcast form. So it's part audio drama, part puzzle game. There were six episodes in the main series. Each of those episodes covertly contains a puzzle. If you, the listener, can solve the puzzle, that puzzle answer will lead you to another location on the internet where you can find a secret bonus chapter to the story. So really, The Golden House was actually a 12-part series. Six main episodes, six hidden episodes. For those that haven't listened to it yet, there's no rush. There's no time limit on the game aspects of the series. All the online apparatus is still functional and it will stay functional indefinitely. It might not keep going after I die. Uh, Not to put a date on that specifically, but uh, I won't be able to renew the websites after that. I'm not planning to go anywhere anytime soon. So, you know, whenever you're ready. The Golden House will be waiting for you. Some people listening right now might well have started listening to the series, but then reached a particularly annoying puzzle and thought to themselves, well, fuck this, and who could blame them, quite frankly. But I have good news for those people. I have now published a walkthrough guide for The Golden House. In fact, a PDF version of that walkthrough is included in the show notes of this episode. I've tried to format it so you can consult the guide for clues without it immediately giving away all the answers, but all the answers are included within the guide. That's a uh, 100% completion guaranteed. Um, I know there are some people who uh, just wanted to listen to the full story without having to jump through all my stupid burning hoops. So now, yeah. With this walkthrough guide you can now do that i wouldn't even call it cheating now um something happened just as i was finishing the series and uh i kind of want to take a quick sidebar to talk about it literally the same day that i released the final episode of the golden house nasa had a media briefing for their new 
sea level monitoring satellite. According to the article that I read, the official name for this NASA satellite is Sentinel-6. But its nickname, um, due to its unusual colour and shape, is the Golden House. If you've listened to the whole podcast miniseries, you might have an idea of just how unnerving that coincidence is. Now, I promise I'm not going to give any spoilers to the series here, but in the Golden House podcast, um, that name, The Golden House, is uh, it's synonymous with experimental technologies that go terribly, terribly wrong. So just on a surface level, like NASA announcing their new Golden House project, right? to my ears, that sounds to me like they're launching a satellite called Titanic or Skynet or Mr. Bean's Holiday. But that's not the only reason this uh, NASA story is unnerving. It's also unnerving because... Um, well, okay, how do I talk about this? Okay. The Golden House, the podcast, I mean, is, uh, is a series about corporate cover-ups. It's a show comprised entirely of fake narratives that need to be decrypted in order to discover the truth. Now, for the whole thing to work as a game, it was really important that uh, listeners to the series questioned the stories that they were being told on the podcast. If the people listening to the podcast didn't realise that there was something secret going on, then there's just there's, there's no game to be played, right? And uh, I've made a crappy corporate tech podcast for no reason. The game design itself, um, it had to stimulate feelings of paranoia in the listener. The act of finding that bonus episode, it's a little bit like the listener is being rewarded for being paranoid, which in turn reinforces that feeling of paranoia, which makes them even more sceptical when they come back to listen to the next episode. So the fundamental principle of my whole game design model, if you want to call it that, was tapping into paranoia and stimulating in the listener something that psychologists call apophenia. Apophenia is the human tendency to see connections and patterns that are not really there. For example, uh, say you learn a new word and then suddenly you hear three people say it in separate instances on the same day. Or uh, you break up with your partner and suddenly every song on the radio seems to be about you. Sometimes these moments of false pattern recognition are small, inconsequential. In other cases, these sort of false patterns can become so compelling to us that they distort and completely reshape our sense of reality. Because, uh, as you might well imagine, apophenia is uh, an incredibly seductive and dangerous human tendency. It's the driving force behind the development of conspiracy theories. It's also what keeps gamblers at the gambling table, where they develop complex systems of superstitions regarding why they lost and why they're next going to win. In extreme cases, 
apophenia is a symptom of paranoid schizophrenia, where everything and everyone is working together to hurt you. Like I said, in small amounts, we all do this. We're compelled to do it. Human beings are pattern-making machines, after all. It's how we work. We just can't help ourselves. It's just that we're so good at pattern-making that our brains want to do it in their spare time, too. For some people, that excess mental energy gets used on stuff like doing puzzles. For others, that energy gets used up on QAnon message boards. But yeah, anyway, this is apophenia. And this is something that the Golden House was set up to intentionally exploit. Not just the Golden House, I should say. Almost all ARGs, all alternate reality games in general, kind of tend to play into paranoiac fantasies. Fantasies where secret meanings emerge from seemingly random data. Now, um, when I first started working on the Golden House, I hadn't really reckoned with how volatile and potentially dangerous it is to fuck with apophenia. Like, the series was already going out as I was writing the back end of it. So I, I discovered a lot of this stuff on the fly, but yeah, turns out it's very hard to maintain control of that pattern-making impulse once you've invited it into your house. When I finally got to writing the final secret episode of the series, don't worry, I'm not going to give any spoilers, but when I got to writing the final secret episode, which is the like the absolute bottom layer of the story, it, uh, it suddenly occurred to me that anyone listening to this episode was probably going to struggle to accept that it was really the end. Because their natural instinct would be to distrust it and keep digging for more layers because that's how apophenia works. Apophenia doesn't do closure. I mean, look at conspiracy theories. Like, they don't have endings. Like, they don't end. They go on forever. Conspiracy theories, there are they're zombified stories, endlessly writing themselves, connecting dots, hallucinating patterns in places where no pattern really exists. So, yeah, I struggled with how to deal with that problem in the Golden House, because whatever ending I gave it, it was always going to feel like a false bottom, because... Once we've been trained to look for secrets, it's very hard to untrain that impulse. Anyway, uh, I felt like I dealt with that particular issue within the story uh, as well as I could, given the time constraints. I didn't handle it in a very sophisticated way, but still, I tried best as I could to draw a hard border around the perimeter of the story. I tried to say to the listener, in as many words, Look, here is the edge of the frame. Any pattern solving this side of the line is a fun game contained within the safe space of art. However, any pattern solving beyond this point is probably paranoia and should be undertaken at your own risk. I mean, if you want to keep going, fine. But just so you know, currently you are just about to leave the cinema still wearing your 3D glasses, okay? So be careful, because out here, the trains can actually hit you. <clears throat> anyway, uh, yeah, so the final secret episode ends on this kind of crude, artless disclaimer 
And I thought to myself, well, this isn't pretty, but it's the ethical thing to do. I've clearly defined to the listener where the fictional ends and where the real world begins. And that's all that matters, because it would be deeply irresponsible to leave any doubt at all in their minds. And then literally the next day, NASA starts talking about the Golden House at a press conference. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? Like, the synchronicity of that is so unbelievably unhelpful. And it just goes to show just how easy it is for fiction and fact to collide by accident. And I will say, like, these kind of collisions, like, these are the perfect conditions for the creation of new conspiracy theories. This is exactly how it happens. Random coincidences get sucked into stories of paranoia and become extensions of those stories. If you think about the things that um, David Icke has claimed over the years, like um, the moon being hollow or the world being run by secret lizard men, both those stories have their origins in science fiction. Hollow Earth is H.G. Wells. Um, lizard Men is, I, I think it's from a Conan the Barbarian story from 1929. Both of those examples are uh, they're sci-fi stories about paranoia that somehow accidentally collided with real-world paranoia. And in doing so, these stories, they uh They somehow lost their protective shell. They lost the container that identified them as art. And in that moment, they became zombified. Not alive, nor dead, not fiction, nor non-fiction. They became conspiracy theories. Now, not that I'm saying that that's going to happen to the Golden House, but all the same, I felt like I got a little taste of the mania that comes with apophenia. And uh, yeah, that was quite enough for me. I mean, even just for my own sanity, I don't need that right now. My fictional world suddenly appearing in the national news, I mean, that is exactly the kind of trigger that could send me spiralling into some kind of Kaufman-esque metafictional psychosis. Am I babbling? I feel like I'm babbling. Anyway, if you've listened to The Golden House and you played the game, thanks so much for doing that. I hope you liked it. If you reached the end and it said the end It was the end, and that's about as clear as I can be on the matter. Man, how could I wait on far too long? Sorry, okay. Let's get to our feature presentation. Should I just do a phone as a backup, or are you going to use Zoom as a backup? I've got Zoom now recording as a backup. I don't actually do a lot of Skype calls, kind of because they scare me so much. Because I, I always, I'm always terrified I'm gonna fuck them up. Yeah. So this is the voice of Emma Limos. Emily is a musician. Uh, she's also a culture writer and radio maker. Under her stage name, Emmy the Great, she's released four albums, all bangers. She's also written scores for films and TV shows and radio programs. Over the past month. Emily and I have been working on this collaborative project together. It's a slightly unusual type of collaboration because by its nature, um, it needed to be kind of secretive. We had to work separately and not really tell the other person what we were doing. How are you doing? Yeah, really good. Um, 
kind of like the first week of lockdown I was like oh it's not going to affect me at all this time and then about day eight I was like this is bad this is bad this is bad and then now I've gone into an equilibrium I'll quickly lay out the plan the collaboration basically breaks down into three steps for the first step Emily wrote and recorded a 10 minute short story Actually, not just a short story, she also wrote an original score and sound design for that story as well. The story could be on any subject. The only rule we agreed upon was that I wasn't allowed to know anything about it. Then, when the story was finished, rather than share the full, completed piece, Emily instead had to send me just the score. Just the score on its own, no words, just music and sound design. Phase two was that I had to take Emily's score and try to write my own story over the top of it. I couldn't edit the score, no adding a second here, deleting one there, no layering in my own sound design, no. I had to match the shape of my story so it fit exactly over the top of the existing music. Then phase three was that we would finally swap our stories so Emily could hear my version and I could hear Emily's original full story that started it all now uh when Emily first sent me the score on its own so uh you know I just had the music and the sound design but no knowledge of the story behind it when I first heard that music I found that to be a really interesting experience and I feel like I'd be cheating you guys if I didn't let you experience that as well because without the inclusion of the story, um, obviously all the characters have been stripped away, all the action has been stripped away, all you're left with are the locations, which you can identify through sound design, and the emotion, which you can identify through the music. So basically, it feels like, uh, it feels like this kind of tour through a series of abandoned places that are all saturated with these intense emotions even though at least verbally nothing is happening being both simultaneously like empty and full of emotion in a way it, it feels a little bit like these locations are haunted like the events have all been wiped away and only the echo of them remains now that in itself i found really interesting but uh also i was surprised to find that even just listening to the score, I still felt like I was receiving a full story from the music. Even with all the language removed, I could still feel this three-act structure. I felt like I could identify moments of emotional change, an inciting incident here, a second act complication there. So the whole thing, it felt a bit like receiving a, a kind of a psychic portrait of a story. What I was thinking when I was scoring is like, you, usually there isn't sound and music throughout the whole recording, right? Like you, you would have gaps, the sound would come back in to underline certain moments or emotions. You would have a much more spare soundscape and, you know, um, like you wouldn't have it so loud. Like I have mine quite loud because it's so important to the story. Um, you know, usually like it's quite, especially on radio I've noticed like it's quite set back, it's quite sporadic. So like once I realized that there had to be sound throughout, otherwise you were gonna have huge amounts of gaps, then like the sound had to become the story. 
rather it's almost like a sculpture rather than like a piece of writing so now i'm gonna play the score to you right all 10 minutes of it completely unaccompanied and uh by doing this i'm hoping that uh you can kind of play along at home too you can you can listen to the score and uh dream your own story over the top so this is it right here made by emmy the great uh enjoy
So there we go. I uh, hope that you were able to hear the um, the story shape contained within that piece of music and maybe you were able to dream a story of your own over the top of it. Before we go any further, um, I just want to quickly read you the page from my notebook that I wrote when I was listening. Uh, Nostalgia for happier times, golden light, happy memory of an arcade, then feelings of longing by a body of water. We are in busy streets feeling overwhelmed but happy a jolt, and now we are having a precious moment with a small child, thinking about circuses until we become depressed. The weather turns, and we are being separated, a countdown to emptiness, but then somehow we are back at the start in a happy childhood place. Then, somewhere beyond the story, strange animalistic noises. So... I just wanted to read that just to show that, like, even within a quick transcription, like, so much of the story already seems to be in place. The musical score, as, a, as an art form in itself, is, uh, it's always transformative. Like, a score is such a powerful narrative tool, it can radically alter the interpretation of whatever story it gets paired with. However, I think this particular score carries even more narrative than we would usually expect a score to carry. And one of the reasons for that comes from the very specific way Emily went about the project. I wrote the story, How I Write a Song, which is like, oh, I've got an idea for a concept or a story or like, remember that night I did that thing, maybe I want to put that feeling down. And then I just like start playing some chords, I start, produ I start producing it straight away and I'll get to like a, a certain point very quickly like improvise and then I'll stop and then I'll listen back to it and then the next bit just it's like playing consequences with yourself so like the sounds were already in my head as I was trying to structure it and then like after I scored it out I just sort of improvised the story loosely based on what I'd written so like in a way like the sound informed my story as much as the story informed the sound so I actually feel like in a weird way I didn't write it with the, the words as much as I wrote it with like the recordings like this the kind of atmosphere and stuff did any of the recordings that you used are they things that you've recorded yourself um some of them came from free sound which is something that I love so I just kept typing in like Tokyo streets Tokyo this and that um and then I use like I have sort of generic birds that I've recorded around just walking around so yeah it was like a real mixture of stuff like I've got my own stems from all my albums which is really great because you know um it's quite expensive to record stuff well so having the stems of everything I've ever paid to record is really useful I can cut that up and use that as well I really really love like going onto the free sound website and being like someone got really excited about the sound of a bowl clinking against a spoon 
you know, and and was so excited about it that yeah. they uploaded it onto the internet. Since doing this project, I've started doing lots of field recordings because I have this real ambition to to um, like submit stuff to Freesound and be like Hackney Marshes, three p.m. Cyclist rings bell, like dog jumps past. Like I really want to be part of that community. It's a really, it's actually a really, really good lockdown hobby as well. Yeah. And it's kind of forced meditation in a way, right? Because you're like, okay, I've got to go and I've just got to stand here in this field, uh, yeah. you know, for a, for, for a long time. So like the th interesting thing is like once you switch the recorder on and then you're like really honing in to say the sound of some leaves, even when you put it away and you're walking, you're actually listening. You're still listening for those like small textures of, of like the world around you. It's, it like it's It's quite it's almost like a kind of like spiritual experience like the other day after i was recording some bird song i switched my recorder off and i could hear like the trees the wind blowing through the trees and i felt like my scalp was tingling because i was listening to it really hard i guess you could say that um the sound of that pile of leaves on any usual day that sound just makes up part of the incidental music of the soundtrack to our lives. And when we walk through a forest, we barely register the noise because the score of our lives, like all good scores, is pretty much invisible to us. Any influence upon us is happening below conscious level. And yet, as soon as we turn a microphone on and hear um, something like uh, this recording, which I got from Freesound, it's, a, it's off a forest near Drunen in Holland by a user Clankbeeld. Uh, when we hear something like this coming through the microphone into our headphones and suddenly the hidden orchestra steps out from behind the curtain and the score of our lives starts to reveal itself to us. Why should hearing these sounds through a microphone be any different from simply standing in the forest and hearing it with your own two ears? Because it is different. I think it is different if you're hearing a digital rendering of the sound, even if you're still standing in the forest recording it. Maybe it's because hearing it run digitally through a device prods the part of our brain that we use for interpreting fiction. I don't know, maybe this sound coming into our ears, it's like uh, an audio drama of our own lives, adapted in real time. And suddenly, everything feels cinematic, symbolic. I mean, granted, it might just be a story about a person standing in a forest doing nothing, but we can't help it. It's a movie now, and we're in it. Everything in a movie means something. Nothing is ever there by accident. So, the forest means something too. We might even find ourselves recalling other stories that take place alone in forests. We begin to notice how a humming forest makes us feel as an audience member, what it does to us, as if the sound of this forest has always served a narrative purpose. It's just that we've never properly listened to it before. It's something I've not given a huge amount of thought to previously you know just how much a recording of a place 
can come to us preloaded with narrative, even before the addition of any music or any other artifice, certain locations just automatically start to tell their own stories. And because of a shared cultural history, lots of different people presented with the same recording will hear that same story hiding beneath. And this is why um, when it came time for me to write my own story over the top of Emily's score, even though I was trying quite hard to be a bit weird, yes, full confession, I made some odd choices in my writing to try and ensure my version would diverge from Emily's version. Even though I was trying to work against the material a little bit, when we swapped back, <laughs> I realized like I had written a story that still shared so many of the same emotional beats as hers. Because I guess when you're working outwards from sound towards story, you just can't help but channel the same kinds of moments because they're coded into the locations themselves. So anyway, I'm now going to play you both of our stories. First up, you're going to hear Emma Lee's original story. Now the story has a title, even though it um it doesn't appear on the final recording. I've got to play you the title because, like, like I said, like the story was so far behind the the score <laughs> that I then gave it this title and I was like oh my god what an incredible title and then just just before I sent it I was going to send it to you I woke up in the night and was like uh okay um so I just just play it to you <laughs> decided to stick with it because I was like it's just as much mine as it is his <laughs> is it always called the outsider uh not your story uh yeah it said so much to my in my defense it's sometimes called the stranger I feel if the book's got two titles it can spare one yeah exactly so here we go here's the outsider by Emma Lemos The first time I saw you was outside a pachinko arcade in downtown Tokyo. It was one of those streets in Shibuya where it's bright as the day, all day and all night. There is noise everywhere, but the effect of the lights beaming out from the arcades, or down from the adverts, or across to you from cars and streetlights, and people's phones as they walk past. All that light starts to merge with the noise, and you can't tell which of your senses you're using anymore. All you know is that they're full up, as full as you can get, and you'll never sleep again. You emerge from a straight pathway of brightly coloured machines. We could still hear people spending their money, losing their savings, but you'd gone in for the photo machines at the back. I didn't know you yet, but I recognised your face from the app. You lifted your hand to my eyeline and showed me a sheet of bright stickers, all of which featured your face with various different coloured wigs on. The wigs were stamped on after the photos were taken by the photo booth, which had also widened your eyes to look like a cartoon and inserted flashes of light inside them to make them glisten. 
Wow, you said. You actually came. It was so loud, so we naturally moved away from the arcade and sat on the edge of a fountain. Do you have a coin? you asked. I had one. Make a wish, you said. Are the things that we wish for really what we want? Or do we secretly believe that we'll be judged if we ask for too much? In this case, I used my wish on you. But I think my selflessness came from an authentic place. You had your phone out and had begun to scroll through our messages. So you like to walk, you said. Want to go somewhere? Yes, please. Only when you were on profile could I study your features without you noticing. I suppose you have certain instincts that I could not be aware of. You were small, as I expected. The light inside your eyes made you look simultaneously young and ancient. As we walked, you asked me so many questions about what we could see. What do you think about all these new buildings? Would you ever pay to watch a movie in 3D? What's your favourite movie? Do you like onions? You asked so many questions, I started to get annoyed. But then we passed a rabbit cafe, and you frowned a little and went quiet. I imagine it was the animal in you, sensing something unfair in the setup. But then I'm just a human, and I also wonder about animals in cages. I hope I'm taking us the right way, I said after a pause. I'm not actually from Tokyo. It said on your profile that you've been here your whole life. Yes, you said, but not in this form. Anyway, I'm not looking for a perfect route. It's just nice to talk to someone. It was clear to me that you were quite lonely. You also said you find it hard to get dates, I teased. Mmm, you looked pensive. In fact, you're my first. And you'll be my last. I knew that. It was one of the reasons that I swiped right. I guess I felt bad for you that you'd never have this experience otherwise. It's the kind of thing that most people take for granted. And a lot of people would find me naive to believe something that I read on a dating profile. But I like to exercise trust now and then. It keeps me from feeling depressed. And it can break up the week's routine, you know. If something surprising happens. We'd been walking for a couple hours when I realised that the atmosphere around us had changed completely. We had turned a corner, and the bright lights of the centre of the city had been replaced by quiet amber street lamps. We were on a tree-lined street, with no traffic whatsoever. All around us it was so still I could hear the sound of someone's spoon clicking against their bowl from a window above us. Oh gosh, I said, it's almost sunset. Is there anything that you have to do? You mean other than what I have to do? You asked. I had already learned that you take things quite literally, so I suppose it's not your fault. No, I said. Is there anything that you'd like to do that you won't be able to do tomorrow, after you're gone? I'm not going to be gone, you said. Ugh, I mean, is there anything that a human does that you'd like to do in your final hours as a human? You blinked. Oh, yes, you said. There is one thing. I'd expected you to say that you wanted to take a ride on a helter-skelter at the funfair, or go to a department store and try on something expensive. Those are the kind of things I imagine I would want to do for fun. Or maybe I would drink one last glass of plum wine, and buy a bowl of family mart noodles. But it was becoming clear to me that we were not alike at all. The shadows were lengthening, 
and the calls of the birds were morphing into the songs of crickets. And you said, I just want to lie down on the grass in the park. Uh, won't you be spending all your time in the park from now on? I usually get shooed away from the neat grass, you explain. By the time we got to the park, it was actually dusk. There were people walking through it on their way back from work. Some people were exercising, but it was really quite empty. We found a patch of open lawn, and you lay down. It's so cool against my skin, you cooed. It's so comfortable to lie here, and it smells just like home. I tried to lie back myself to join you. After a few seconds, I was feeling itchy. I lay for what I felt was a polite amount of time. Then I sat up and surreptitiously checked my phone for the time and for any new messages. Just then, the sun dropped below the horizon. You bolted upright. I really felt for you then. You looked so nervous. You told me that day that you'd spent seven years in a human body, learning human ways, trying to fit in. Now your time was up, and you had to go back to your old life. I looked at your manicured hands, at the careful way that you'd bent to tie up your shoe. I remembered that the last time I'd left Japan to visit my family in Hong Kong, my own culture felt so strange to me after many years away. All this was waiting for you. I wanted to warn you, actually, about how it would feel from now on. How you might well feel like a stranger in your own home. Because in some ways, by travelling, you'd displaced yourself for life. The clouds parted, and a shaft of moonlight broke through. The moonlight, you'd explained to me, was a big part of the transformation. I heard you gasp, and I realised this was the end of the date. Hey, I had a great time! It was an overstatement, but now is not the moment for brutal honesty. You know, you can always rap on my window sometime, if you want to, like taste a beer again, or look at something on YouTube. I had a great time, you said very seriously, and I knew you really meant it. For a moment I thought you might lean in for a kiss, and I thought, hey, why not? It couldn't go any further than that. But instead you put something in my hand, and said, thanks so much, I might just take you up on that. It looked sad, but it was nothing to do with me. As the moonlight caught you, you pulled your head close to mine and whispered something in my ear. And though I didn't understand it, I knew you transferred some knowledge to me that I hadn't had before. Not much has changed in my life since that night. I still eat family mart noodles and use dating apps to meet people. I still go to work, and sometimes, if I feel like it, I'll go to the gym. But before I go to bed every night, I always look at the photo booth picture that you handed me before you left, which I keep in a box in a drawer. It looks different now from the first time I saw it, outside the arcade. Under the cartoon features, the picture of you shows your true fox spirit face, with a red snout and a snowy white patch on your chin. I think about you, and I wonder how you're doing back in your old life, and if you'll ever make good on your promise to come over and hang out sometime.
I really wish that I had the time to also take an abridged version of The Outsider by Camus just to see if I could also map that onto the same score. I'm 99% positive that I could do it. If this episode wasn't already a week late, I'd do it. Um, it makes me kind of happy to know that uh, no matter how well I might have intuited the shape of that story from the score, there were some story elements that I was never going to be able to guess, which isn't to say that, you know, now when I listen back to the instrumental version, part of me isn't going, of course it's about a date with a fox spirit. It ended up like that because I couldn't go anywhere else because I was like, okay, I know I want Japan because I've heard the sound of pachinko in my head. So we've got to go to Tokyo. And then I was like, I would really like to put the sound of a phone, but you know, so I was like, okay, it's going to be a Tinder date. And then I was like, the logical conclusion is that it is a fox spirit. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I just can't figure out why, but that's where we're going. Because I wanted to see if we would come back together in certain moments because I'm pretty sure that we'd have totally different stories. But with the points where we would match because the sound would only take you to one place and I think like we sort of did so I think this is about the right time now to hear my version which is called pterodactyls so here we go Whenever I hear the sound of a gurney being wheeled through a hospital ward, I think about my brother and the many things he tried to teach me. Specifically, I think about one day when I was seven years old, a month or two after the operation on my heart. My mum and dad arranged a special treat to take my brother and me to the amusement arcade on the other side of town. I remember climbing into the taxi, my iPad clutched to my chest. Since the surgery, I refused to be separated from my favourite cartoon. Nothing else came close to the therapeutic effect of a cartoon about a robot dog who can transform into a giant trebuchet. Even so, the arcade proved too intense for me. My brother had to coax me inside with a toy from a gumball machine, a self-assembly robot. He shoved one robot leg in, then the other robot leg, and handed me the rest to finish myself. Mum and Dad paid for me to play as many games as I wanted. They seemed like different people that day. My brother caught the confusion in my eyes and tried to explain with the kind of honesty only a 12-year-old would dare. Relax, he said. They're just being super nice to you because they think you're going to die soon. Another memory. I'm sitting in my friend Paul's skanky jacuzzi, telling him I'm going to join the army as soon as I turn 17. Paul tells me I can stay in his spare room till the situation with my parents blows over, but I never want to go home again. Then comes a text from my brother. Just discovered mum and dad have secret brain tumours. Both have less than one week to live. Come home now. 
obviously I knew that was bollocks, but I came home all the same. Though, now, I am thinking of another homecoming. Back from a time when I was too small to know what home was or what it meant at all. In the memory, my family and I are walking through an airport looking for signs to the train station. My parents are giants beside me, hauling suitcases almost as big as they are. I must be more than five years old, which means my brother must be ten. I've no memory of the holiday we're returning from. All I remember is my brother trying to convince me that we were being followed by a pterodactyl. His finger jabs the sky behind us. The pterodactyl, he says, it follows us still. I squeal with each new sighting until I can take it no longer and dash into a shopping centre for safety. I make it all the way up the escalator before mum and dad even realise I'm missing, which means I have a balcony view of my family when they finally give pursuit. They can't see me, but I can see them as they dart in and out of the shops, calling my name. My brother stands frozen on the concourse, his face red and wet with tears. I remember looking down on him from this new pterodactyl-wise view of mine and thinking, it's not such a bad thing to have an ancient dinosaur watching us from up on high. If this pterodactyl wanted to attack us, wouldn't it have done so already? Maybe it's sworn to protect us. Another memory. Now, I'm 37. I've just lost my job at the water company, so I've decided to go stay with my brother. I spend a week sleeping on his sofa, though his cat usually bullies me onto the floor around 4am. One morning, my brother comes in, puts his arm around me like he used to when we were small, and he tells me that my redundancy was probably ordered by deep state operatives who were covertly taking over the country's water supply so they can poison everyone with estrogen. To avoid continuing the conversation, I go smoke in the garden where my niece, Dana, is still playing with the empty teacup I gave her earlier. On her t-shirt, a kind of deconstructed circus. Clowns, acrobats, lions, spinning away in different directions, like someone shot a big top in a deep space. And now, I am ten again, sitting with my brother in the sickly sweet dark of the circus, watching two young tightrope walkers begin their routine. Seeing my clenched fists, my brother puts his arm around me and says, Don't worry, they're not real, they're just robots. And I remember thinking, what an asshole. Does he think I'm that stupid? How old does he think I am? And now I am 70 years old 
snowed into my house. The worst winter in decades when a text comes through from Dana. Dad's back in hospital. If you want to see him, you should come right now. That night, I have a dream. I'm in a hospital, standing by my brother's bedside, watching him sleep. I take his hand. This is just a dream, I tell him. And not a very detailed dream at that. I mean, I never had your creativity. You're the dreamer in the family, not me. I tell him that I wanted to be there with him in person, but I'm stuck in my house and all the roads are closed. I look at all the wires running in and out of his body and think to myself, nice try, old man, but I know you're not a robot. The way you saw the world was so ridiculously human, you could never be anything else. You tried to help me in ways that I never wanted to be helped. And even when it worked, I don't think it ever played out the way that you intended. But still, right now, I would give anything to hear one more piece of your batshit advice. But instead, the dream begins to dissolve, overtaken by the sounds of the storm outside my bedroom window, the hospital filling with snowdrift. I try to hold on, my mind searching for any shapes, any sounds, anything to keep him close to me. The sound of the clock above my bed turning like the cylinder of a taxi meter. And suddenly, I am seven years old again, unbuilding and rebuilding my robot on the back seat of our taxi on the way home from the arcade. My brother is pointing out to me which shops are secretly fronts for the Mafia when I grab his finger and say, Hey, why do you always know the answer to everything? He looks out the window a while, then, completely straight-faced, he turns to me and says, I'm from the future. His eyes drop a second to the scar on my chest, then he adds, Don't worry. Everything turns out okay. Fair enough, I say. I let go of his finger. And suddenly, I am 84 years old. A bit of a time traveller myself these days. I hear the screech of a gurney somewhere else in the hospital and smile. The pterodactyl. It follows us still. Like I said before, in some ways, uh, my story is a very different story, but um, there are lots of similarities too. Both of our stories are about the dissolving of a relationship, 
Both stories are about feeling displaced. Maybe, most importantly of all, both stories are about people being given advice. And uh, not only that, but struggling to understand it. You know, I love the bit where the fox spirit um, like whispers something in the ear of the protagonist. And yet, but it's almost that moment like too late they've turned too much back into a fox and so like the the piece of advice is kind of it, it's delivered in in like fox tongue and so it's kind of abstract you can't follow that piece of advice explicitly because it's it's because it's it's now it's, it's it's something which is like tonal and in many ways, I felt like I was trying to do the same thing at the end of my story. It's all about a brother giving advice, which is kind of all bad advice. But the character is still trying to take something good in it. Yeah, I just realised in my one, I've that that's in Lost in Translation. <laughs> I've just written Lost. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I basically wrote Lost in Translation, but with a fox spirit. I, I think you've you've improved in perfection. If that if Bill Murray had also been a fox spirit. See, see, that's the that's the what. It's really interesting when you like really honing in on like the Sonic world. You sort of like your brain is free to completely forget to write your own story. <laughs> Just sort of like, um, it was like yeah, the story was so. It it was so sort of you know you can agonize over stories, but it wasn't in any way agony it was just sort of like okay well that's what is happening because there's a fountain here and um yeah. it was actually, like it's quite fun to work like that because i guess in some ways it feels a little bit like um channeling because you know like you're just opening yourself up to the spirits and you're kind of seeing which stories uh come to you and I, I gotta say that's why i love using form in general that's the reason that like I like putting these obstacles in my path and creating these kind of structures because, yeah, I, 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 it means that I don't write from the front of my brain. I kind of try and write from the back and um, the, the stories just emerge. It's, you know? that's it. Yeah, it actually feels really, really good to do that. It's almost like free writing. Yeah. And in a way, it's like I think because like I feel like what we're going through right now it's very hard to talk about and it's very hard to process right now like doing doing stuff like this like i'm sure when we both go back we'll find more elements in the stories that are sort of part of partly to do with what we're going through right now but we didn't yeah. realize that I, I i agree and you know i think we're living through this period right now where we are on a daily basis given impossible advice it is a little bit like having a, you know, a, a, a fox whisper in your ear or a, a uh, uh, an older brother say something kind of like surreal and uh, slightly malicious to you as means of trying to help you. Because like, yeah, we're, we're kind of, every day we, we're kind of trying to navigate all these different new systems that are being sort of like foisted upon us and trying to make sense of it and trying to follow it even though like it often seems absurd the the earliest memory in your story the little boy is trying to handle something that is absolutely like not for a child to understand which is his their own mortality and so like the only yeah. that's like the only help that the brother can give is to say something so outlandish and like kind of so obviously a joke but so morbid that it 
it sort of distracts from yeah. the reality or like gives the 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 boy permission to not have to think about the reality and I think like that is kind of that's where we're at all the time is like wait how do we think about this how do we actually like put ourselves in the world so maybe maybe the similarities between our two stories here they're not simply connected because the music told them what the scenes had to be nor is it because certain scene locations are so steeped in storytelling that they write the story for us. I mean, both those things are true, but turns out there's another hidden orchestra that both Emily and I were playing to. The fucking news. And upsetting as it is to discover just how deep 2020 has got into my brain, I can't say that I'm surprised. I do think it's good, though, that both stories, despite being melancholy, both end on quite an optimistic note. I mean, neither character really understands the strange lessons that have been bestowed upon them by their Fox dates or big brothers, respectively. But they both seem resolute in uh, trying to take these surreal experiences and trying to make something positive out of them and if the back of my brain is happy with an ending like that uh then I guess the front of my brain will have to be too Thanks again to Emma Lee Moss, a.k.a. Emmy the Great. There's a brand new Emmy the Great album, new for 2020. It's called April. It's out on Bella Union Records. It's fantastic. Um, I'm going to end the episode with one of the songs from the album, uh, the song Mary, which Emma Lee said was the, the track on the album that came together in a... Uh, in a similar way to the writing on this project, with the, the story emerging intuitively out of the music. If you're someone who supports this show on Patreon, thank you so much. I'm incredibly grateful. This show, it just wouldn't exist without you. And, and uh, if you don't support and you'd like to help me keep making imaginary advice, uh, please sign up at uh, patri- Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Ross G. Sutherland. Because that's my name, Ross G. Sutherland. The G is for Gordon. Um, thanks so much for listening to uh, Imaginary Advice. I uh, I owe you one. Uh, look after yourself, you fucking... Yeah. Fortune teller told me that my life was bound to fail, she said. Don't make too many plans, that train goes off the rails. 
present is a gift, so don't look it in the mouth. She said a lot of things like this. She filled my head with doubt. The fortune teller's name was Mary, and the things she told me were so scary. But in the end, none of it came true. And the cover. Hope she wears a jacket when it rains. 